Russian soldiers have been told they're fighting because the criminality of Chechnya has spilled into neighboring territories and is even destabilizing Moscow. But no one feels the lawlessness more than the Chechens themselves. Absolutely nothing that the Georgian forces can do to stop these attacks. The Russian Air Force has complete command of the air. All evidence shows uh, was perpetrated by the uh, so-called separatists. We call them terrorists. Russia launched an attack on neighboring Ukraine early Thursday. Ukraine's military said Russia began shelling Ukrainian forces in the country's east and carried out rocket strikes at airports in multiple cities across Ukraine. Invasion, cyber attacks, election meddling, psyops and political intrigue. Is Vladimir Putin the world's worst neighbor? Most of Putin's reign, Russia has been at declared or undeclared war with someone. What he likes is precisely a certain low level of chaos. In the mountains above the village of Banska, which was stormed by ethnic Serb gunmen, police are still gathering intelligence. The Russians realized that there was a whole host of weak spots on this periphery of the Atlantic and European border. Um, and one of the poles was the one in the Balkans. They are playing with Putin's playbook in Donbass, little green men who wanted to start a war and divide. This is not a drill. I'm Gavin Esler. Welcome back to This Is Not A Drill. In today's edition, we'll assess the ways in which Vladimir Putin's foreign policy treats Russia's near abroad as both a target for interference and even reconquest, and an opportunity to exploit simmering feuds, create political chaos and tear apart the global order. We all know about Putin's aggression in Ukraine, of course, and in a moment we'll hear about his dangerous meddling in the Balkans. But first, I'm with friends in the Baltic city of Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, once part of the Soviet Empire, along with Estonia and Latvia. Everywhere here, there are Lithuanian flags. But alongside them, even on the local buses, are more Ukrainian flags than you could ever count. It's not just solidarity. As my Lithuanian friends tell me, if Ukraine falls, who do you think is next? And here's a personal story. A couple of years ago, I came next door to the Estonian capital, Tallinn, to talk to those involved in NATO's splendidly named Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence. But why is NATO's Cyber Defence Centre here in the Baltic? Well, back in 2007, the democratically elected and independent Estonian government decided to move a statue. No big deal, you might think except the statue is a heroic Soviet soldier commemorating the Red Army liberating Estonia from the Nazis in World War II. To modern Estonians, this monument was a memorial to Russian occupation and a brutal Stalinist past. They wanted it out of the city centre 
and put it in a cemetery on the city's outskirts. Cue outrage in the Kremlin. And purely coincidentally, of course, a shocking cyber attack took down Estonia's banking system and other online facilities. The Cyber Defence Centre in Tallinn is NATO's response. But the moral of the story is that from the Arctic to Georgia, from the Baltic to the Balkans, Vladimir Putin is obsessed with Russia's western frontier and is making trouble in much of it. The Ukraine war is just the most overt part of Putin's post-Soviet angst. So, let's turn to another underreported but dangerous flashpoint, the Balkans, and the simmering yet still unresolved conflict between Serbia and Kosovo, rooted in the collapse of Yugoslavia three decades ago in 1991. Local populations, security analysts and NATO itself are all on high alert. Years of tension reached new levels in September this year with a deadly confrontation between Kosovan police and a paramilitary group. Kosovans say Serbia was behind the unrest. Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic, an ally of Putin, says it had nothing to do with him. Later in the episode, we'll hear from leading Russia analyst and Putin expert Mark Galliotti. But first, to explain why all this fits into Putin's wider plans, let's hear from an expert on the Balkan conflict, Dr. Yasmin Mujanovic, author of The Bosniaks, Nationhood After Genocide. Yasmin, for those who don't follow it carefully, maybe you could talk us through a little bit about the situation between Serbia and Kosovo now, and then we can get into some of the historical background too. Sure. So at the moment, Serbia and Kosovo are still embroiled in what, for the better part of the last decade, has been referred to as the Serbia-Kosovo dialogue or the Pristina-Belgrade dialogue, which is this kind of EU-led effort at normalization between the two sides. Unfortunately, since about September of uh, 2021, we've started seeing an uptick in significant instances of violence. Uh, In the uh, first half of this year, we had a violent riot led by Serb nationalists in uh, the city of uh, or the town of Zvechen in the north of Kosovo, which resulted in something like 30 NATO K4 peacekeepers being quite severely injured. And then just a few weeks ago, we had the most violent incident uh, in Kosovo in many, many years, where a Serbian-backed paramilitary group composed of individuals with uh, seemingly very close ties to the Serbian president were interrupted in the process of some kind of scheme by Kosovo police, uh, and uh, that resulted in a day-long shootout uh, between the two sides uh, and involved uh, the death of one Kosovo police officer and several other attackers. And I suppose we we should say that the Balkans, even the word Balkanization in English, uh, suggests that there's lots of different minorities and majorities in different configurations across the Balkans. Uh, And they were held together uh, in large part by the former Yugoslavia, which is no longer in existence. So that in itself is part of the problem. Sure, yeah. I mean, in some ways, the the Kosovo-Serbia dispute is kind of the last lingering echo of the very uh, complex and violent dissolution of the former Yugoslavia. And it, in some ways, is rooted in the peculiar status that Kosovo had during um, the Yugoslav period, in the sense that it was not one of the so-called republics of Yugoslavia. Um, It was a province appended to Serbia 
However, I think in some ways that's a little bit of a misnomer because Serbia has claimed for many years, for instance, that you know it's very hypocritical of the West to have recognized or large segments of Western countries to have recognized Kosovo. Uh, but at the same time, Serbia uh, has very much continued to uh, foment secessionist activity in neighboring Bosnia um, and, and, and effectively carved out this so-called entity during um, the, the war in the 1990s. So realpolitik is what's States make of it. Um, but it's certainly the case that there is a, a long and complex history to the Kosovo Serbia issue. Who backs whom here? I mean, you mentioned the EU has got an interest in peace. Um, mm-hmm. What, if anything, is the Russian role, Putin's role? And obviously, the Americans had an interest too, going back to the 1990s. Well, the Russian role is very significant. Um, they are arguably the chief foreign backer of Serbia in this dispute. Uh, Russia, along with China, is the primary reason why Kosovo does not have a seat at the United Nations because of their uh, position in the UN Security Council. And I think in a kind of broader sense, uh, Russia has seen fit to keep the Kosovo issue on the front burner to one extent or another of European politics because they believe that so long as Western actors are distracted uh, by trying to manage or micromanage uh, the Serbia-Kosovo dispute in one way or another, um, especially when there are instances of violence, as we have unfortunately seen over the course of this year, uh, then that will distract their capacities, diplomatic, political, and otherwise, in engaging on Ukraine. I think in that sense, it, it fits into some of the other activities that Russia has been engaging in over the better part of the last year, year and a half uh, in Africa and parts of the Middle East and so on and so forth. At the same time, I think it's important to stress that this is not, you know, in that sense, orchestrated by Russia. This is a genuine local dispute. Um, It's just that Russia has, uh, I think in some ways, quite successfully weaponized it for its own purposes. And that largely has to do with the fact that since 2012, 2013, we've had the return of the nationalist hard right to power in Serbia. So um, I don't think uh, Alexander Vucic needs Vladimir Putin to stay in power in Serbia. What he does need Vladimir Putin and Russia for is to keep the Americans and the Europeans engaged in a kind of let's balance all sides and perhaps even take a slightly more critical view of Kosovo. Uh, that's certainly been sort of the case in, in, in over the most recent period. And that has made the entire kind of uh, issue with Kosovo much more salient, much more difficult and much more entrenched. I wondered whether you see uh, a pattern here then. Uh, what is happening in Serbia may serve Russian interests. We know that Russia has interests in Georgia. We've seen refugees or asylum seekers being essentially assisted over the border by the Russian side into Finland. We've seen what has happened with Estonia, where Russia also interfered in their banking system, among other things. And the Baltic states are, of course, quite alarmed because they feel on the front line. And perhaps on top of all that, I saw recently a publication from from Poland suggesting that there could be another wider war in Europe within a few years. Now, that may be alarmist, but there's a lot going on in that region. And Russia seems to have its finger in many pies. I think it does, um, because I think what the Russians have realized, and and I don't think they realized it exclusively in the context of the most recent round of the war in Ukraine, uh, I think they realized it, you know, basically in and around the original phase of the war in 2013-2014, that, that there was a whole host of kind of weak spots on the sort of proverbial periphery of the Atlantic and European order. Um, and one of the 
easiest and mushiest holes was the one in the Balkans. Because for people who have not paid attention to the region, you know, there was this sense that after the wars, okay, well, these countries were all sort of somewhere in the EU process they're trying to join, you know, it'll work out eventually. And the reality is that the, the, the wheels of the European attempt to integrate these countries had fallen off a very long time ago. And the EU had been sort of muddling through without any clear sense of uh, its own policy priorities, without any real meaningful political leadership and desire to deal uh, with, with declining political conditions on the ground, and especially without meaningful confrontation of some of these emerging hardline elements in the region, like Vucic and uh, the Bosnian Serb secessionist Milorad Dodik, but as well as a host of other actors, you know, the EU had just sort of said, well, this is not really an issue. We don't have to, we don't have to deal with this because these people are not going to foment any meaningful crisis that we can't resolve essentially without giving them, you know, little freebies here and there. Uh, but the sad truth is that there is a very hard right electorate in Serbia. Um, you know, the polling data suggests that, for instance, vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, something like 70% of the Serbian population supports Russia in the war. Um, we're at some of our lowest polling data to date in terms of pro-EU sentiment. We're well under 50% now with Serbia. And the Russians saw all of this and they said, wait a minute, this, this is like a really cheap opportunity for us to invest in low-level chaos. And unfortunately, the problem is that what perhaps in, say, 2013 or 2012 was relatively low-level chaos has now become something a little bit more serious indeed. Um, because when we're talking about, you know, killings, paramilitary activity, uh, when we're talking about riots and attacks on NATO peacekeepers, um, this is a considerably more volatile security situation. Just a final thought then. Is this a, a Russian matter rather than a distinctively Putin matter. I mean, obviously, he capitalizes on it. But is this actually something that would be in Russian interests as a great power, a significant power with clearly lots of interests stretching from the Baltic right down to the Balkans? Uh, it's a matter of how Russian leaders conceive of their great power status, right? I mean, there has been, uh, shall we say, non-Putin actors within the Russian sphere uh, who have made various claims about, you know, uh, historical rights and historical relationships with the Balkans, in particular, uh, sort of Serb Orthodox communities of various sorts throughout the region. Um, a marginally more sane leader than Vladimir Putin, or at least one marginally less inclined towards direct violence, would say, okay, well, the position we see for ourselves in the Balkans is as a deal broker. We we hold a lot of cards. We hold a lot of sympathies with people who have been blocking negotiations. So let's let's do some trades. I think for somebody like Vladimir Putin, unfortunately, he looks at Kosovo, he looks at Serbia, he looks at Bosnia, he looks at the entire region, and he says, "Look, this is a place where I can just get a lot of free kindling, pour a little gasoline, and let the thing run for itself." The sad reality, however, and, and sort of my final point would be that the Balkans are a place where both the US and the EU have always, even today, arguably held actually all the cards. They've just lacked the political will to play them. And in that regard, that is sort of the true tragedy of great power politics as far as the Western Balkans are concerned, more so than the sort of proverbial penetration or interference of states like Russia and China. Kosovan Albanians on one side and Serbs on the other. 
The clash, which left one officer dead, has caused seismic shockwaves and raised the spectre that another war may not be far away. A couple of years ago, I was in another ex-Soviet satellite, Dresden, in what was once East Germany, talking to former students who led the 1989 uprising against the communist government of the DDR. We were in the old Stasi headquarters, the home of the secret police, and then walked over to a grand house where the KGB had their headquarters. A former student leader explained that back in 1989... The house was surrounded by several thousand unarmed demonstrators like him when a Russian KGB colonel came out and in fluent German calmly told the demonstrators that the Russians were packing their bags and heading back to Moscow, but anyone attempting to invade the property would be shot. The KGB colonel was Vladimir Putin. The demonstrators realised he was not bluffing and Putin played a bad hand with great skill. He may be doing the same again. One of the world's best-known Putin watchers is Mark Galliotti, an academic and author most recently of Time of Troubles on the Russian Underworld, Putin's Wars and the Weaponization of Everything. Mark, let's, let's begin with Putin himself. I mean, he's next year, I think, 25 years in power. How secure is he, do you think? That's the perennial question. And I think the answer, the slightly unsatisfying answer, is that his position is strong but brittle. There are no serious, obvious challenges to him. He's weathered the Prigozhin mutiny, which was anyway never really an attempt to topple him. There is no meaningful opposition within the country. On the other hand, he's created a system in which, to be blunt, there are no Putinists. Everyone who supports him supports them because they are a rapacious opportunist and supporting him is both safer than opposing him, but also the way to prosperity and and so forth, which means that in some ways they're constantly involved in a cost-benefit analysis. And therefore we could imagine a situation in the future where essentially momentum could shift very, very quickly against him. And I think this is the one problem. We've got a system which is strong, but not very good at responding to the unexpected. It's not resilient. And therefore, I think when and if there are going to be more systemic shocks, and the one thing we do know about politics is there will always be something else coming along, whether it's a collapse of the front lines in Ukraine, whether it's a rolling economic crisis at home, something like that, then his position may well have to be very quickly and uh, savagely reassessed. But up to that point, frankly, he's unassailable. We'll get into specifics in a moment, but it sounds in a way as if he's not someone who's got any friends, but he's got people who are either followers, users, or dependent upon him or using him for their own ends. I mean, that that that's the brutal fact, isn't it? Which suggests he's not hearing a widespread range of views saying, Vladimir, maybe this is a bridge too far. You've gone a bit far. You could do something different. This is absolutely one of the problems. And look, it's not unique to Putin. We tend to find this all authoritarian leaders over time, firstly, become essentially a caricature of themselves. But secondly, lose more and more opportunities to hear alternative perspectives. If one looks back to the first two terms of Putin's reign, 
back in the, the 2000s. Absolutely. Then in his circle, he had people like the later finance minister, Kudrin, who were absolutely willing to, to challenge his worldview and propose alternatives. Now, though, look, I mean, I remember having a, a sit down with a recently retired Russian intelligence officer back in 2015, who said, even then, look, we have learned that you do not bring bad news to the Tsar's table. In other words, Putin wants to be told what Putin wants to be told, not what he needs to hear. And for a while, that works when you're lucky. But as we saw in February 2022, it can also lead to disastrous miscalculation. One Russian commentator uh, said that Putin is addicted to war like a drug. And I suppose you could say Chechnya, Ukraine itself, obviously, and also proxy wars of uh, Syria and whatever is going on in Serbia. I mean, he does like to stir things up for the neighbours, doesn't he? He likes to stir things up, but I think that's the point. It's, it's, it's a difficult and, and maybe these days arid distinction to make. Although, frankly, most of Putin's reign, Russia has been at declared or undeclared war with someone, even if it's with itself, as in Chechnya. But nonetheless, I don't think that actually Putin is a warmonger for its own sake. This is not a sort of a martial leader in that respect. What he likes is precisely a certain low level of chaos. This is why, in some ways, the pre-Gaza crisis Middle East was ideal for him. A low level of tension so that essentially he could play everyone off against each other, but not the kind of crisis that forces you to come off the fence. So likewise, I mean, in terms of his neighbours, yes, he's perfectly willing to go to war if he thinks it's going to be quick and easy as he thought, after all, the Ukrainian invasion was going to be. But rather, he just wants them to be on edge and aware that at any point he could project power into their lands. One implication of that is he's quite happy for other people to be doing the fighting and dying, in other words, in Syria, for example. And perhaps he is encouraging people in Serbia. But Nagorno-Karabakh is another example. I mean, how successful is he being in securing any aims, or is it simply to keep the chaos, the bubbling under? I think this is the big question, and it's a, I mean, a time-honoured one of, is Putin a tactician or a strategist? Does he have that big vision, or is he simply quite able and nimble at exploiting opportunities when they arise? And my view is that that is the case. I think he has a broad picture of a strong, powerful Russia. And because he has a very zero-sum notion of the world, a strong Russia depends on, requires, or at the very least benefits from everyone else being weak. So precisely, he wants people to be unstable. But I don't think he has that kind of grand vision of where it goes. And what we've often seen is that his short-term tactics actually could often lead to Pyrrhic victories, that instead he creates disturbances which other people take advantage of. You mentioned Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, actually, it was Azerbaijan, and behind Azerbaijan, it was Turkey, that took advantage of a crisis that Putin for a long time seemed to be benefiting from. But did he betray the Armenians? In other words, is he a very unreliable ally or supposed ally? He's an absolutely unreliable ally, but particularly not so much because he's treacherous, though he often is, but rather because of the fact that so much of his strength was based on a presumption of Russian power. And when the Ukraine war demonstrated that the Tsar had no clothes, that's the point when so many of the understandings on which Russian power in, in its near abroad, its, its immediate strategic neighbourhood, had been based, 
fell apart. We've seen this in Central Asia. We've seen this in the South Caucasus. How long can he keep going in Ukraine? I mean, there are some that I've talked to who say, well, actually, he's waiting for something to turn up. And the something he's waiting uh, to turn up is Donald Trump in the presidency of the United States. Look, I think it's more generally that it's clear Putin does not anticipate a military victory on the battlefield without or at least separate from a political victory in the West. That if it's the case that the West begins to lose the will and the ability to continue to support Ukraine, then Kyiv may be forced into the position where it has to make some kind of ugly deal. And in some ways, one might think that we're already beginning to see that. We've had the US Senate blocking a very major aid package for Ukraine. And also we've had Viktor Orban in Europe doing much the same for the European Union. But we have to keep that in context. Really what this is, is a reflection of the fact that everything becomes a bargaining chip in politics. You know, if one looks at the Senate, it's actually Republicans largely just wanting to give Biden a bloody nose and see more money being spent on the, the Mexican border. Likewise, Viktor Orban is essentially waiting to be bought off. So I think these are, shall we say, speed bumps rather than roadblocks, and we will see the aid coming. But nonetheless, yes, there is clearly signs of Ukraine fatigue. And so whether it's with a Trump election in the United States or some kind of fragmentation of the will within Europe. From Putin's point of view, he's hoping that if he hangs on long enough, there will be some kind of breakage, some kind of fracturing in the West, and then Ukraine will be in a vastly weaker position. Obviously, the 2024 US presidential election isn't a rerun of 2016 or, or even 2020, but, uh, although in some senses, I suppose it is. But how much meddling can we expect from Russia in that election? I think we have to acknowledge the degree to which Russia has become a lot more realistic in what can be done with disinformation. I mean, I think you know, it's clear that, yes, of course, there was meddling in, in previous elections, but not in any way a decisive one. So instead, I think what the Russians have now done is, is adopted a strategy whereby they don't actually try and swing the results of elections, because they know that that's just not possible. What they do is take fullest advantage of the inevitable division and heightened tensions that surround any electoral process and magnify those. And in some ways, the virtue for Russia is that not, unlike the Soviet Union, it has no real ideology. So in this respect, it can reach out to the extreme left and the extreme right. It can reach out to nationalists and separatists and federalists and you name it. And essentially try, you know, whether directly or through proxies, to inflame. Essentially, Russia's goal is to radicalize the most divisive and destructive forces during times of elections. So that no matter who wins, the country is so torn apart by vicious political feuding that in some ways it's unable to really muster any kind of political consensus for any long-term strategy. So I think that's what we're likely to see. More than anything else, an attempt just simply to take advantage of the fact that these are likely to be hard-fought and, frankly, pretty politically bloody elections and take full advantage of that to see what they can do to help tear the United States apart. Nobody on the Republican side of the Senate has been more enthusiastically supporting the idea of a comprehensive supplemental that deals with Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. But while we're talking about borders, 
I'm advocating, and I hope all of our members vote no on the motion to make the point, hopefully for the final time, that we insist on meaningful changes to the border. Now is the time to pay attention to our own border, in addition to these other important international concerns. Mark, your analysis is obviously one that will be familiar, for example, to the Chinese intelligence and diplomatic community, to uh, the Iranians, to other actually rather sophisticated players in this this multilateral chess that we're talking about. Again, with the, the relationship with with China, there's a lot of kind of fuss going on about that publicly. It's all very warm, but is it really that warm? Is it just simply, you know? I was, I was going to say, rather like the 1930s, various dictators can get on with each other for a bit. Yes, look, when it comes down to it, as you've already noted, that Putin doesn't really have friends. Shortly before the war, Putin and China's Xi Jinping got together and they declared that they had a friendship with no limits. You know, it's turned out to be a friendship with no benefits, in that the Chinese are really not supporting Russia in any way sort of, of the level where, which Putin would have expected. Sure, they're happy to sell dual-use technologies that also have a military function, but they're not going to sell weapons. Sure, they're happy to take advantage of the war and magnify Russian propaganda, especially in the global south, but they're not going to actually come out and say that they support Russia in its case. They just simply say they understand Russia's position. So it's actually been a, a very, I think, severe disappointment for Putin. But when it comes down to it, Putin has nowhere else he can go. He needs someone who will buy his hydrocarbons, his oil and gas. He needs someone whose banking system is still willing to connect to Russia's. And, you know, a lot of wealthy Russians need somewhere where they can launder their money if they can't get to Dubai um, and continue to buy the, the nice Western luxuries that they got used to. So for all of these reasons, Putin and his system at the moment needs China a lot more than China needs them. And so from China's benefit, this is probably win-win. If Russia loses, it will be all the more in hoc to Beijing. If Russia wins, then the West will no doubt descend into recrimination and soul-searching and be a much less formidable force. So from China's point of view, although there are costs, nonetheless, for the moment, it's happy to wait and then maybe acquire for itself the role of peacemaker at some point when both sides are exhausted. Can we re return to where we began this conversation, which is um, how he is seen, how Putin is seen internally? Um, just a specific question. Has the Wagner group just gone away? I mean, wh where are they now? Are they, have, are they all loyal soldiers or have they all gone home? The Wagner group still exists. In many ways, what's happening is the Kremlin is trying to have its cake and eat it. It clearly still wants Wagner to be operating in Africa and elsewhere in, in the global south, where it was both a useful tool of influence and also, to be blunt, made money. But on the other hand, the last thing it wants is to have any kind of autonomous military force like Wagner still within Russia. From the Kremlin's point of view, it's learnt the lesson that it can't allow a single force with a kind of brutish but competent leader like Prigozhin to still be around. But on the other hand, that actually this whole 
realm of the shadowy, is it state, is it private, it's actually a bit of both, mercenarying is still a useful way of raising more troops at home and exerting influence abroad. But the main point is it's fragmented and under much, much tighter control. And within the bureaucracy, um, the FSB, the intelligence services and the, the military, I mean, how much do they really get on and how much do they see? Are they continuing to jockey for position and therefore uh, Putin can divide and rule them as he can do with other countries, frankly? I mean, even before Putin, there was always strong rivalries between these various different, so what they call power agencies. Under Putin, that's been magnified. And in many ways, this was actually a fundamental element of his rule. Russia today is a strange construct. On the one hand, it's essentially a very recognisable, modern, bureaucratic, institutionalised state, atop which there is an almost medieval court. And in that context, central to Putinism was deliberately creating overlaps and rivalries that exactly would keep these people competing against each other, which allowed him to, to remain the figure at the top. Now, that proved phenomenally effective politically in keeping him in power. It's proven phenomenally ineffective on the battlefield. So what we've seen is precisely that the military doesn't get on with the National Guard. The National Guard doesn't get on with the Chechen fighters. The Chechen fighters don't get on with Wagner. Wagner doesn't get on with the other mercenaries. And this has often actually been a serious dysfunctional issue within the, the war in Ukraine that, frankly, Putin doesn't know how to fix because the only way he could fix it is by changing his entire political system. So in this respect, yes, on the one hand, the continued rivalries between the agencies and often within the agencies as well supports Putin. It maintains his position of centrality. But in other ways, we should actually bless it because it also makes the Russian state less dangerous and formidable than it could be. The army has always been central to Putin's power, but they're failing in Ukraine. They haven't delivered. And that's a problem, obviously, a political problem. It's a political problem. The interesting thing is that, that up to this point, Putin has been lucky enough or smart enough to pick relatively small controlled wars that he could either win or, if need be, walk away from. And Syria would, 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 would be case in point. And essentially, each war he's fought, he's won for those reasons. Ukraine is something very different. And he clearly didn't think this was really going to be a war. He had convinced himself that the Ukrainians would essentially you know, throw in the towel within, within a few days and that this would be more of a police action, a kind of rerun of the Crimean annexation rather than a real struggle. So on one level, it's just that he made a, a bad military blunder. Because after all, this is not a, he's not a military man. He has no meaningful military experience. But also there is an irony that actually all this time he has been dumping huge amounts of money into reforming the Russian military away from its old Soviet model, a model that was built on mass armies able to fight big industrial wars into one that precisely could do these more elegant, small-scale intervention operations, the sort that we, we have pretended to do in the West. Now he finds himself precisely in a big, ugly, mass industrial war. So, you know, there, there, there is a certain irony in this ghastly conflict that actually one could argue that if Putin had put less effort and less money into reforming his military, he might actually be in a better position to fight in Ukraine. And just a final point on that. Soldiers are citizens too, and so are their parents and their wives and their families and so on. However patriotic a Russian may be, that is not politically very good for Putin, is it? 
There's a slow drip drip effect. At present, I mean, because there's a sort of a massive level of propaganda, there's a, hu a huge effort to try and ensure that actually the, the word of what's really going on in Ukraine doesn't get out. But also, actually, courtesy of what they call stop loss policies, essentially the soldiers are not going home at the moment unless they're going home in a box, which means that, again, we, we've seen control of the word getting out. Now, look, if I go back to, I, mean, I did my PhD on the Soviet war in Afghanistan, what's really interesting is actually that an authoritarian regime that controls the media can hold the lid on for quite some time until you get a critical mass of veterans back home. And then suddenly the lid gets blown off. So I think we, we are at that early stage of precisely up to this point. Most Russians don't really know the truth, but I think we're now beginning to see the signs that really in 2024, that's going to change quite dramatically. And once that has, then it comes so much harder for the Kremlin to manage the narrative and say that this is a successful, victorious, but above all, necessary conflict. And to sum up, it will be 25 years of Putin in power next year in 2024, and his quarter century does seem very likely, unless some illness were to, or he falls out of a window in a very high building. He's going to be the leader of Russia for some time to come. I think so. I think the point is exactly, it's that this kind of regime can last a long time. It may well not be effective in coping with an unexpected systemic crisis. It doesn't have the resilience. But the point is, we have no way of knowing whether that's going to come in a month, a year, or God help us all, a decade. Putin's Russia is enormous, yet underdeveloped, troubled as well as troublesome. There are 11 time zones full of great natural resources and 145 million people. But Russia's GDP is only around that of Italy. Even so, as in Dresden in 1989, Vladimir Putin continues to play a bad hand to his own advantage. His problem is that he inspires fear rather than loyalty. Few dare give Putin awkward advice or suggest that in underestimating Ukraine he made a terrible mistake. Nevertheless, 2024 may yet be a year of opportunity for him, since NATO requires American leadership, and in the year of a presidential election, the disruptor in the Kremlin clearly hopes that America chooses its disruptor-in-chief, Donald Trump, to make a return to the White House. For my friends in Lithuania, the threat of Putin wanting his empire back is real. That's why, along with Estonia and Latvia, they're now in NATO, an attack on any NATO member is, under NATO doctrine, an attack on all of us. This is not a drill. I'm Gavin Esler. Thank you for listening. This is Not A Drill, was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parrott, and social media by Jess Harvey. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.